0: My name is Dean General. This is my wife, Trish. We've been married for 28 years. We've got three children.
1: My name's Jeanette Hudgens. This is my husband, Dean, and we have seven children. They're all adopted. Raising children has been the biggest blessing in my life, but it's also been one of the biggest challenges of my life.
0: We're fortunate. All three of our kids and our daughter-in-law are walking with the Lord, um, but it has not been without their own struggles and their own story transferring our faith onto our kids is it organic or or does it just happen naturally no it's not organic Um, it's it's really something that you have to be intentional about you have to be intentional about living your faith out loud with your kids and then having them see it
1: I think modeling your faith and letting your faith be authentic and real is what is important we're on a stage we're on a stage for our kids all the time and so are you going to be real in that are you going to be honest um, with the good and the bad and just allowing them to see the realness of your faith along the way and that is what's going to speak way more than anything that you say most
2: of it is lived out at the kitchen table in the in the living room in the car going to school coming home from a bad day, spending a weekend out on the hiking trail, or sitting down and drawing a picture together.
1: They pick things up from us as we live our lives, as we walk out our faith. It does require some sacrifice and some um, planning. Um, I know when they were little, we did a lot of reading to them in the evening and Bible memory verses. As they've gotten bigger and older, it's kind of morphed into more just spending time talking to them. Teenagers want to talk at 11 o'clock at night when I really want to be sleeping, but um, that's when they really share their hearts and they want to open up. And so I think that relationship, that communication is really important as they're um, getting ready to you know launch into adulthood where they're going to make some really important decisions
0: the biggest struggle in discipling your kids is to let them fail forward and giving them space for the toughest lessons that our kids have learned and as we've discipled them is through the school of skin knees and that really the discipleship of your kids really happens on your bending knees as you're praying for your kids the struggle is being willing to let your kids fail and realize that the biggest lessons, the most powerful in galvanizing their faith, oftentimes happen in them overcoming that failure.
2: Some of the struggles that we faced in discipling our kids have dealt often with um, trying to apply the same lesson, the same style, the same message to each child who can be very different from the last one.
0: I would say with our older children that when they were younger, I tried to uh, parent as if it were a formula, and if I just applied A plus B, I would always get C, but it didn't always work out right. Our family mission verse is Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? He requires of you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. One thing that you need to know, kids, as you leave this house, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and walk humbly with Him. Everything else will kind of fall into
1: place. As my children go out into the world, I want them to know just the truth of God's Word and to be grounded in their identity in Christ, who they are in Christ. And um, that's not defined by the world or things around them, but in Christ. And also that God has a calling and a specific purpose for their life and that they need to go live it. God is their anchor. You know, it's not Dean and I, you know, that God is the anchor of their life.
0: So I think the the one thing that I would tell parents that we've learned is that discipleship has got to be intentional. Your kids have to see that your faith is real. Um, We have to model that. Um, If we just tell them it's instructional, but if they see in us that our faith is real, then they recognize that a relationship with Jesus is a real life transformational thing. If you involve your kids in relationship, And make them a part of something that's genuine, authentic, and real, that's when discipleship becomes life changing versus just a directive set of rules.
2: Families are fun, families are messy. There's no two family that's uh, no no two families that are alike. No two families look the smell the smell the same, look the same, or are parented the same. And not only that is, if you realize this, and once we had a boy and once we had a girl, we thought we had everything there. And then all of a sudden we had another boy. And then all we realized that no, their combinations are different even for the second boy. And so there's absolutely nothing the same from one to the next nearly. It's almost like rewritten each time. And you know, some of y'all have uh, computers that you've got to change the password every so often. Well, I think with children and raising children, it's similar. And trying to be a good parent, it's similar. However, we have been studying for a couple of weeks now. This whole idea of this great big Hebrew word, or little Hebrew word actually, the Shema, the concept is the same. And what the Bible has done way, 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 way back, long before we were parents or even thought to be parents, is God put a blueprint out there. Now, not everything is going to be the same, okay? But there are certain things. Every home is a little bit different. Every house is different. Every subdivision is a little bit different. But yet there are certain elements to a blueprint that no matter what it is, that element must be on the blueprint. Well, so if you might look at it like this, you might look at the Shema as the blueprint for a family. Now, every child, like every home, is going to look different. It's going to have its own personality, its own twist, its own turn, its own artistic flair. Sometimes parenting is art. Sometimes it is science. Most of the time I think it's art. And it's that expression and that individualization of each and every child. And as we've talked about this, we've kind of brought it into the Christmas season because so much about the holiday so much about christmas is around children we make it about the children so if we're going to make it about the children then let's do this in a very healthy manner let's make it about the children but let's make it about the children in such a way that we are truly giving our children a gift that never ceases a, not just a holiday, not just a not just a plastic toy, not just a a memory, not just a tradition, but we give our children something that will change them, mold them, shape them forever. And really, the Shema does that. And so here it is on the screen. I want you to read it out loud with me. We've said it for several weeks. So I want us to read it out loud together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your might. Now, however, the combination it is to get that into the next generation—whether you're an aunt or an uncle, or your niece or a nephew, or you're you're a teacher in our schools—this is one of those things that we need to figure out how to get it into the children. Now, we talked about Christmas being more than a holiday, so let me give you some quick rundowns on that. Because uh, let let me say this first of all: I know I realize this when we start talking about parenting. We start talking about children. There's, there's, there's two people in this room right now that are feeling different emotions. There's the group in the room right now who says, this doesn't apply to me. Okay, I'm not married. I don't have children. I don't see children anywhere near my future. So Mike, tell me when this series is over and I will come back then or I'll check back in then. Please don't do that. Let this be a formation of your own theology, your own practices, your own thought processes. So as you do one day, whether it be 5 years, 10 years, 15 years from now, you're parenting that you'll have some schema from which you can build from, okay? Then there's the other, other emotion that's in the room right now of maybe feeling like you tried that, you did that, and it didn't work out. I tried that with my kids. I, I, I thought I was doing that. I, I, I planned to do that. I, I, but I'm, I'm not getting the results that I thought I was going to get out of the whole, out of the whole scheme. And, and the reality is, is that 35,000 parents were surveyed by, by Dr. James Dobson. This published, was published in his book, Parenting Isn't for Cowards. And 30% of the parents out there feel like failures. Now think about that for a moment. of the parents feel like they're failures. Listen, this is not a series that would make anybody feel bad. Hopefully it's a series that will hopefully give us direction for life. Let's talk about Christmas. Christmas isn't a day, it's a life. We want our kids, we want the next generation to really understand who Christ is and understand what Mass is, not Catholic Mass so much, but the idea of worshiping Christ is not a one day a a, a year thing, but it is a lifestyle. Christmas doesn't just happen here, it happens there. Okay, so this coming uh, Christmas Eve night on Saturday night, we're going to be in this room. We're going to have two gatherings at 3.30 and 5, and I hope you're going to be a part of one of them. But here's what it's going to be. It's going to be a beautiful time and we've been planning this service. and It's going to be meaningful. and It's going to have the feel and the ebb and the flow that you'd expect on a Christmas Eve gathering. But Christmas doesn't just happen in this room. It happens in your home. And we're going to challenge you to take it on Christmas Day, which is next Sunday, to your home. We're going to talk about that as well today. Christmas won't happen, to, it won't happen tomorrow if, if Christmas doesn't happen well today. We need to make sure we are doing worship well today so that our children will get it, will own it, uh, it will take over their heart and their soul. That is good parenting. That is when we are preparing our children to enter into this world. Listen, here's the reality about parenting. Here's a life principle for you. You can jot it down if you want to. And it is this, is that as a parent, this generation, my generation, your generation, the generation that you're living in, Yes, we plant and we nourish the seed of faith to the next, okay, in the next generation. It's the next generation, though, that will either nurture or neglect that seed. Don't feel like a failure because your kids aren't maybe walking the way you thought they were going to walk right now. It's your job to just make sure you're getting the seed in there, that you're making sure that you're transferring the the Shema to them, that you're modeling that for them. And it's going to be ultimately up to them whether or not they're going to receive it and they're going to walk in it. There's a responsibility of the parent and it will be an arduous responsibility. There's a responsibility of the, of, the, of the uncle or of the aunt, of the big brother or the big sister, that we can make a big difference in the, in the future. But really, at the end of the day, it's going to be on them. Even Paul, whenever he was talking about raising up disciples and praying and, and, for the churching at, at, uh, at Galatia, he was praying that, oh God, that, 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 that God would do a great work in their hearts and he wanted to see God formed in them. It, it was as if he was the parent of them. It was as if he was the parent. So parents, you take this verse and make it your prayerful verse for your children, okay? And it will fit perfectly. Here it is in uh, in Galatians chapter four, verse 19. Oh, my dear children. You hear Paul? I mean, he is passionate. This is not a a, a placid. This is not a passive. This is not a, a, hey, if this works out for you, if you want to receive this or not. He says, oh, my dear children. I feel as if I'm going through labor pains. You talk about pains? He's going through it. Parenting is painful at times. Yes, it is very painful at times. Labor pains. I'm going through labor pains for you again. That they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. That is a beautiful prayer Passion, desire for every parent, for every child, for every uncle, for every grandparent is that Christ would be fully developed in the next generation. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be, I go through labor pains and you're going to have those nights that you're going to be pulling your hair out. But listen, I'm praying, I'm seeking, I'm longing, I'm hoping that you will have this great relationship and Christ will be fully formed in you. Now here's the kicker. I'm not going to talk anymore about the next generation. Because in my study of of the Shema, I really realized that there's a big challenge. And the challenge is not so much on us making sure the next generation gets it. We got to make sure they get it, yes. But we got to make sure we got it first. We can't give what we don't have, we can't pass on what we don't possess. What We can't set on fire in the next generation what is not on fire in this generation. And I'm not trying to all become self-centered here and to gaze at our navel or anything like that and to just not meditate on ourselves. No, I'm not trying to say that. But I am trying to say this. Listen, if we're worried about the next generation, let's make sure this generation gets it. And when this generation gets it and lives it in a passionate, sold-out, hot-hearted kind of fashion, it's going to be contagious in the next generation. When I was studying the Shema, I found that it's repeated multiple times. And as Moses was building a nation... He was building this nation, He was trying to challenge them for the next generation and the next generation, and your children and your children's children. He had this major focus of making sure it would be transferred to the next generation. But he first of all comes in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine, and he says, "Listen, we need to take care of you first." Notice what it says here in, in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine. "Only take care." Now, this word, take care, is a phrase that is used over 462 times in the Hebrew language throughout the Old Testament. It is a very common phrase. Take care. Guard. It talks about in other translations or in other places. You need to guard. You need to take care. You need to tend to. This is something that's very, very precious. Now, now, now before you read on, and I know you've already read on, but before you read on, what's, what, what do we need to take care of? Is it the next generation? Is it the, is it the generation after that? Is it, is it making sure our kids get a great education? Is it No, no. You need to make sure you take care of your soul. Your soul. Diligently taking care of your soul. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Lest they depart from your heart. And all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. So the challenge today is not so much, hey, making sure your kids get their Bible verses in this week. But I want to make sure that your heart is on fire. I want to make sure that your heart is ablaze. Because when your heart's ablaze, it's going to be possible, it's going to be very probable that the heart will be contagious and it will it will ignite the next generation. But if your heart's not on fire, if your heart's not set straight, if your heart's not right, if you're not diligently taking care of your soul, if you're not taking care of it, then guess what? You'll forget God. You will forget the things of God and the next generation They'll wonder who God is. We got to make sure our soul's right. I want you to read this out loud with me. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known. It's only whenever your heart is a fire. It's only whenever your heart is ablaze. It's only whenever your heart is right that the children and the children's children will get it. We have three chairs up here on the stage and I want to talk about these three chairs today. And as you think about chairs, I think we all understand chairs. We all understand chairs because we use chairs in our home when we put our kids in timeout. How many of y'all have a timeout chair in the house or had one when you're growing up? Okay, are we the only ones who did that? Okay, we did that. We had a timeout chair. You need to put your kids in some timeout every now and then. All right, naughty chairs in the classroom or something like that. There's the head of the table chair. You know that holiday comes around. And I can remember my papa, he he had a certain chair. And one time I went and sat in his chair and he just basically came up and he pinched the back of my traps there and he just let me know that that was his chair and I was sitting in his chair. I didn't sit in his chair any longer after that, but I learned that. So you learn whose chair is what at a certain, the judge has a chair. There's the naughty chair of the electric chair. You know, there's all kinds of chairs out there. I can remember playing basketball. You always, if you were the sixth man, you always wanted to be the coach sitting here and you wanted to be sitting here so that hopefully whenever he's going to put a sub in, you're going to be the sixth man into the Game. we all understand the value and the placement of chairs and the power of a chair the holiday chairs you know the kids get set at the table uh that's the card table with the hard chairs and the adults get in the nice room with the linen tablecloths and all that kind of stuff how many y'all have that in your home please tell me all right good i got a witness out of that one at least all right so you know you got all these chairs you get in, in in the band there's a there's a first chair the coveted first chair. we all understand the value of a chair I can remember sitting in a chair in Texas Stadium in 1993 and hearing John Maxwell share a message to 60,000 people in this stadium. And I was the father of two preschoolers back home and I can remember being challenged with a lot of what I'm going to share with you today. He talked about three chairs and the the three types of chairs that we all sit in, and and one of those chairs is a hot chair. It's the the passionate chair. It's the sold-out chair. It's the dedicated chair. It's the chair that is alive, okay? And this is the chair that you want to be in. It's the chair you want your children in. It's the chair that, that, that you want your grandchildren in. But as as Moses told the people in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, you've got to be diligent about your heart lest you forget, lest, lest you forget, lest you don't remember any longer. And then all of a sudden, then your children will not remember. What happens so many times is we move from the, from the hot chair to the middle chair, that lukewarm chair, and sometimes we, we don't transfer it as well or they don't receive it as well and they end up in this chair. And I don't always know what happened between this chair and that chair, but, but it's, a, it's, it's transformative what happens. Sometimes it's the fault of the giver and sometimes it's the fault of the receiver. But the point is, is that I've got to make sure that I'm in this chair. I've got to make sure I have a hot heart for God, for His Word, for worship, for prayer, but I want to make sure my heart's right. I want to be in this chair because I want my kids in this chair. I want the next generation in this chair. but the problem is that sometimes we'll even find that a generation forgets God and grows cold, loses their faith, quits God. They slide all the way to the third chair, and this is a dangerous chair. There's a natural faith leak that happens, though. You can't miss it. You know, you've understood vision leak, and vision happens in businesses whenever the, the founder of a company or of an organization leads with this passion, the next generation is not quite as hot about it. The next generation loses it, and it loses its morals, it loses its moorings, and all of a sudden it's, it, 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 it's off culture. And you want to have the next generation to be in this chair, but so many times there's this vision leak, and you end up down in this chair before long. It happens in education. When you look at Harvard and Princeton and Brown and the Ivy League schools, and you understand the history of those schools and how they started and why they started, John Harvard donates his library and, and, and I think a third or maybe maybe half of his estate so that so that Harvard could start to train pastors for the next generation and yet today they don't even recognize the scriptures they don't even acknowledge jesus christ as the way the truth and the life and you can see how harvard started started here but harvard has landed here in this chair nobody needs to be in this chair Churches start off when they start in this chair. People who start a church, they go hot-hearted. They're giving, they're sacrificing. There's a commitment level. There's an expectation level that happens here that doesn't always happen here. And what happens is is you might start very hot-hearted for God as a movement of God and you're wanting to change and affect change and bring change to a culture and to a generation. And this is a great place to be. But that next generation, about 15 years into, a church. That's why I'm a little bit at at this point in our church, because we're 15 years old. Most churches begin to plateau at 15. Most churches lose their vision and their passion at 15. I don't want to lose this. I want to stay in this chair. By all means, I want to stay in this chair. I want to make whatever changes, whatever adaptions, whatever we got to do to stoke the fire, because the natural tendency is that we'll end up in this chair. And we're only inches away from this chair. It happens in your marriage. No kidding, man. I don't know how many of y'all, in fact, I want you to in your mind right now, think about your marriage. If you're married, Or maybe you're in a long-term relationship. You might even be able to exercise this right now. I want you, and I don't want you to put this on a piece of paper because that person may be sitting next to you right now, all right, unless they know it already. And I want you to answer this question. Am I deeply satisfied, deeply hot-hearted satisfied with my marriage? Am I moderately satisfied with my marriage? Or am I dissatisfied with my marriage? Where are you? Because it's so exciting when you're here. It gets a little boring here. Many times you start looking for an exit when you get here. You start looking for some excitement when you get here. You get here and it's only a matter of time. And the reality is there is a natural digression in every marriage. You take on life, you take on life like a boat takes on water and all of a sudden you feel like you're drowning and you find yourself, you know, with all these commitments and all this debt and all these unfulfilled expectations and you have kids. In fact, there's, there's a study that was done and I, and I can remember it when I read this book before I was even married. I look at our marriage and I can see that, hey, we're not careful. We're going to end up here because this graph that I'm about to show you came out of uh, uh, Norman Wright, who's probably the guru of marriage counseling. He talks about satisfaction in the marriage. He talks about how these are the stages that a couple will go through. Typically they start really high, then they have kids, then they have more kids. Now kids don't take it on you. You didn't kill your parents' marriage. What they didn't do is they didn't take care of it. The satisfaction moves to dissatisfaction. and The the problem is is that before it ever starts to turn up, you start having teenagers and you start looking elsewhere and you start turning your eyes and your attention somewhere else. It doesn't have to go like this. This is normal. We're going to have a conference. We're going to have a seminar here in a few months that's going to talk about an abnormal marriage. I want us all to have abnormal marriages how are we going to have an abnormal marriage? Because this is what most marriages look like. And by the time those kids get along, you're like, hey, I, I'm ready to bail on this or I'm trying outside things or I'm bringing other things in. And it becomes a, a mess. A marriage begins to leak. Back on the whole faith leak, marriages leak, education leaks, faith leaks. Let's come back to the faith leaks for a moment. You see this in the scriptures. You find it in the Church of Ephesus. When the Church of Ephesus starts, it's a hot-hearted church, man. You look at the Church of Ephesus. There's more written in the New Testament on the Church of Ephesus than any other church, and you can see so much out of the Church of Ephesus and how they had a love for God and a love for others, a love for God and a love for others. Look at this next. Look at this next slide. Every chapter in the letter to the Church at Ephesus points to the fact that they loved God and they loved others. The very first time it's used, it's used in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I heard of your faith. Paul had... They had a reputation Their love for God, their love for others, it had a reputation. It had an aroma. It had an attraction to it. It had a passion. It had a fire. You could warm yourself by the fire and your love toward all the saints. And you go right on down the list. They had a great love, which he loved and being rooted and grounded in love and built uh, itself up in love and And walk in love as Christ uh, uh, loved us and gave himself for us. And and then, the very last words of the very last that Paul writes to the church uh, in in Ephesus, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. A church that was hot hearted for God and knew what love was and knew how to love God was a beautiful thing. Thirty years later, we can chronicle it. 30 years later in the book of Revelation, you have these words. In Revelation it says, No, you're enduring patiently and bearing up uh, uh, for my name's sake in that you have grown weary, but this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Some of y'all... We're sitting right in the middle, right now. You remember these days. It was camp this past summer. It was a mission trip. You remember these days. You were hot-hearted for God and nothing could turn you off. You were ready to charge hell with water pistols. You were ready to move around the world. Whatever it was, you were here and you remember that. You were praying. You were reading scriptures. You, you were walking with God. You, you had people keeping you. you. This was a beautiful time. But all of a sudden, you find yourself right about here right now. And all you can talk about is what you remember back then. You don't have stories of God working in your life now. You have stories of what He did then. And the thing is, is that I've been to Turkey. I've been to modern-day Turkey. I've been to modern-day Ephesus. I have walked the streets of Ephesus. And you know there's not a church in Ephesus any longer. And you realize this, that per capita of all the nations in all the world, that per capita there are more unbelievers in the nation of Turkey, according to Operation World, than there is any other country. That means the city that was once hot-hearted for God and had a reputation for God and a love for God all of a sudden got cold and lost its first love. And to this day, there's not a gospel witness in the city of Ephesus. The greatest church in the New Testament mentioned more in the Bible than any others had a severe leak of their faith. Abraham... You go to the patriarchs and you study Abraham. He was a man of commitment. He was the first missionary of God. He had a hot heart for God. He was willing to go to a place that God had not shown him. He said, I will show you. Okay, God, sign me up. I'm ready to go. Did he have his faults? Did he have trust issues? Did he have... Yes, he did. I'm not saying any, any of these people or any of these places or any of these faiths were perfect, but I am saying that there was a, there was a vibrancy. There was a liveness about it. There was a life-giving element to them. And Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, three major religions of the world point back to Abraham. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. They point back to Abraham as the man that every time he moved into a village, you study this for yourself, every time he went into a town, the very first thing that Abraham did was he built an altar to God. You prove me wrong. Every time, the first thing that he does He builds an altar to God. You go to the next, uh, his descendant in Isaac, and you have a man of compromise. He sat in the second chair, and you find that every time that he went into a new place, he dug a well. And then he would build an altar. Now, I'm not saying that that well digging is not important. In fact, Genesis 26, 18 says Isaac dug uh, again the wells, the water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father. Listen, having water and having water wells is a very beautiful thing. And what we're going to do in Mozambique in this coming year, I pray through your gifts, through your sacrifices, this coming uh, Saturday night is we're going to see 12 wells drilled, dug, whatever, uh, in and uh, around northern Mozambique, in and around areas that there's just Muslims and there are unbelievers and people who villages that have never heard an animistic faith that are there. But we're going to drill wells and we're going to dig wells, but we're also going to present the living water of Jesus Christ. We're going to send teams in to do that. We've got missionaries on the ground that you're offering support. It's a beautiful combination of drilling wells, but more than anything, presenting the gospel. That's what we're going to do. We don't want to lose this. We certainly don't want to be here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can read Genesis 35 later on, but you'll find where the only time he built an altar was when he was in trouble. Think about that. The only time he built an altar was when he was in trouble. And he had boys that lied and stole and tried to kill. patriarchs had faithfully david was a man after god's own heart he lived in the first chair he was a man not perfect we all know the story of david and Bathsheba. we all know the story of uriah who's not perfect but he was a man after god's own heart he had a son named solomon he was a man who lived for pleasure yeah he did build the temple of god but he also built more for himself than he did for god and then you got rehoboam he was a man who focused on power he lived in the second chair or the third chair, excuse me. David united the kingdom. Solomon used the kingdom. Rehoboam divided the kingdom. You can see how very easily there's a leakage of the faith if we are not careful. Very diligent in our hearts and our lives. If we're not very careful, the hot hearted faith that was once there leaks out in the next generation, even in the Davidic dynasty. It leaks. Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 2. I want to read a passage of scripture that I just want to read it through. I'm not going to spend a lot of time developing it, but it doesn't need developing. You'll see it. Just follow this pattern. You'll see the digression that happens if we're not careful. When dismissed, it says in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 and following, it says, when dismissed, the people, the, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. Now, this is the promised land. They had been away. They had been to Egypt. They had been in captivity. They had been for 40 years in the, in the wilderness. They had lived out there. And Joshua was the leader. He was the leader of the people and had been handed the baton from Moses. And the good thing is, is this is a beautiful picture. Is it doesn't go, it doesn't go from Moses hot hearted to Joshua lukewarm hearted. It stays right here, and Joshua stays hot hearted for God. He even says in the last part of Joshua, he says, "Choose for yourselves today who you will serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord." One of my favorite verses in Joshua it said in the. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done. Now I want you to just zero in on the elders for a moment. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, but there is something that's a bit scary here for just a moment. I'm just going to point it out. They saw the work of God. I want to come back to that in just a moment. Just hang on to that. They had seen all the great work that the Lord had done in Israel. You've got to remember back in Joshua. I'll come back to that in a moment. Let's, let's keep reading. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and he was buried with them in the boundaries in the, in the inheritance of, of Timnath and Haraz in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountain of Gesh. You all know where that's at, right? I don't either. Uh, And all the the generation also were gathered uh, to their fathers. And there arose a great generation, uh, excuse me, another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord. God didn't go somewhere. They abandoned went somewhere and the god of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of egypt and they went after other gods and among the gods of the peoples and they were around them and they bowed down uh, to them and they provoked the lord to anger listen some of us don't like it the fact that god can get angry at us but whenever we abandon god whenever we are the ones who turn our back on god there's this there's this righteous anger that god will have if we're not careful and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and they gave them over to their plunderers and they plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. See, they were able to stand and withstand, but all of a sudden because they had forgotten God, abandoned God, had done their own thing and ignored the voice of God, then all of a sudden now they're left to live with the consequences of that. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them. Listen, you never want the hand of God against you. There's another verse in Scripture, that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You never want to be warring against God. You always want God warring for you. And the Lord sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Real quickly, Joshua was in chair number one, no, no doubt about it. This is the guy that with Caleb, and we named our two sons after Joshua and Caleb, these these guys right here, because these were the guys who were sent in with the spies, and they were sent in by with 12 others, or excuse me, 12 total, and they were to spy out the land, and they were to see if they could take the promised land that God had promised to them. And the 10 came back and said, no, no, we can't take it. These guys are like giants. They'll squish us like bugs. That's my rendition of it. They'll, they'll, they'll kill us. There's no way we'll make it. And then all of a sudden, Joshua and Caleb stand up and said, well, we can do this we can do this and they did they ended up spending 40 years walking around in the wilderness but god allowed caleb and joshua allowed them to go in they had a hot heart for god there's something about the elders we don't know much about them but here's what's really burdensome to me is the statement that they saw they had seen the works of god Tomorrow, i may make it too big of a deal about this, but I just want this to be something that we all meditate on. That there's a generation coming behind Grace Point Church, that all they can point to is what they have seen and what they have heard. I remember when we used to go to West Africa and we went into this nation where there was only 2% believers and we would go in and set up in, in villages and we would preach the gospel. And Yeah, I remember hearing about these church plants and I remember hearing about the wells that we were digging in, in Mozambique. I can remember about foster parents. I can remember that happening and I remember seeing that happen. I wasn't a part of it. But hey, I was really busy. You don't understand how busy I am. You don't understand how much I got going on. But I could see a lot of hot hearted people doing a lot of hot hearted things and I was really encouraged by that and it was really good to see that Happening, but they weren't living it. And here's the fear of me uh, today, fifteen years in, is that we might have a spectators, but not participators, in the work of God. Sitting in chair number two, and then we're only one chair, only one generation away from those who did not know the works of God. It happens to nations, it happens to kings, it happens to churches, it happens to families, it happens to institutions. And there's no reason why it won't happen to your family and my family. How do I, how do I stay myself in chair number one? And how can I pray to God that my kids are in chair number one and my grandkids are in chair number one. There's no pixie dust. There's no magic formula, but I can tell you this. If you'll start with the Shema, and just make sure you know who the Lord the God is and that he is one. And there's not multiplicity of gods. There's not a pluralism of God. Not all roads lead to heaven and God. That there is only one God and you know who that one God is. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you don't know who Jesus is, I'm afraid you don't know who God is. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to be factual. From the chair that I sat in. then you know who he is, but you also love him. You love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You love him. You can't think, you, you are constantly trying to think of ways to love him. Three ways that I want you to think of real quickly. And these are just mine. I mean, there's nothing magical about them. But if I want to make sure that I'm in chair number one, my kids are in chair number one, I got to make sure I'm firmly Clearly, emphatically, boldly, in chair number one, jot them down. Number one is be intentional about pursuing and maturing your relationship with God. You've got to hot hearted pursue Him. If He's some lax, lackadaisical relationship, if it's a Sunday affair, as Barna calls it, if we drop our kids and run at the, at the kids' programs, at the youth programs, and we don't own our part in it, listen, we are missing it. Complete this statement out loud. What we do in moderation, our kids will do in, huh, excess. If we're laxadaisical here, guess what? They're going to be even more so. If we're hot-hearted here, then it's hopefully and prayerfully that they're going to be even more hot-hearted for God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We read it earlier. I want us to read it again. Read it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's like he took every possible compartment of who you were and said, Listen, you need to think of ways, I need to think of ways that I can love God in each one of those crevices, buckets of my life. Can you say that in your own heart of hearts? When you think about it, do you love Him? See, Jesus took the Shema and He made it the greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, He said this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Listen, so I want to challenge you, moms and dads and aunts and uncles and whoever, you, you, have a, you and I have a responsibility to the next generation. Are we clearly in chair number 1 i want you to keep your soul diligently keep your soul diligently here fight for it work for it claw for it scratch for it and we want to we want to equip you to go home next weekend this is intentional that you would go home next weekend and not come to church because I want there to be this on Christmas day, this go home to church kind of mentality that we're going to do church at home. And as a home, we're going to step up here and we're going to be in chair number one and we're going to do it. Now, listen, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's going to be awkward and clunky. You know why it's going to be awkward and clunky? If you haven't been doing it, it's going to be awkward and clunky. It's like your first kiss. Was your first kiss a good kiss? Okay, it was awkward and clunky, all right? But hopefully it was sweet and you wanted to go back for more. We have canisters all around. They're preloaded with a guide. The canister, we call it time capsule. I want you to take one. If you don't have one, take one. If you have one already at home, then here's the, the, the insides, the stuffings, if you will. There's a guide in there. You just take that. If you have one from last year, please just take this. If you don't have one or you can't find one, you actually buried it like a time capsule and you can't find it now, then, uh, then you can take one of these. But the point is, is that we want you in your home to sit in chair number one and distinguish your family apart. So we're going to give you this Sunday and say, hey, take it. It's your Sunday to be in chair number one. In fact, right now, take out your phones if you're going to be willing to, to do this. I want to answer this question. And only one person in the household, okay, only one person in the household should answer this because we want to skew the numbers here. How many of our families... Are going to be doing home church next Sunday. Okay. That's a simple question. A or B. Text it into that number. All right. 22333. You'll get, and then you'll text in that little message part. GPC NWA. You'll get a response back. At that point, you put in A. Yes. Our family is going to do this. And you're going to come forward at the, in our, in our response time, and you're going to take whatever is, you need to take so your family can be ready for, for doing that. All right. Think about it. Let's keep moving on. Number two, you can fill that out and we'll, we'll keep, uh, keep that tabs and we'll announce it on, on, on social media. Number two, demonstrate, not, uh, don't just dictate your faith in Jesus. Demonstrate. You have talk times in your home. Talk time in your home is whenever you're talking about the faith and you're not just dictating the faith. We even talked about reclaiming the table A study was done by Columbia University that found that families who eat five meals per week together avoid many of the serious problems that beset teenagers. That's a study done by a secular university. Reclaim the table. We've also talked about reclaiming drive time. We've also talked about reclaiming uh, 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 bedtime. Do whatever it takes to create talk times in your home. But there's also demo time, okay? You need to have demo time. And demo time happens all the time. That's where you're demonstrating the faith. Albert Schweitzer said it like this. There's only three ways to teach a child. First by example, second by example, and third by example. So think about it like that. How are you modeling it? How are you modeling it this coming Saturday night when it comes offering time? Are you modeling generosity as a family? We've talked about it. Water wells. Helping Encounter Church become permanent in Boston, moving to a facility, the ministry that happens twenty four seven, like uh, Foster Parents Night out last weekend. There's so many ways that we can we can we can be a part, be a part, be a part, and do our part, and do it as a family collectively. Number three is move through life with a healthy rhythm. Get some healthy rhythms. Obviously, what, what, what do we call insanity? Doing the same thing and expecting different results. You need to change the rhythm of your life. You need to get into a better rhythm in your life. It says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Above all else, guard your hearts. That's the same word he used in Deuteronomy 4, 9. Guard your hearts, for out of it everything comes. Everything comes out of your heart. You gotta, we got to get into a different rhythm. There's going to be a series of messages we're going to start the new year with, and it's just basically called Rhythms. It's trying to figure out a better rhythm for life. We're going to talk about this is the rhythm that we've been living, but this is a better rhythm, okay, for life. We're starting that series in the new year. What are you going to do to make sure your family is clearly and emphatically in chair number one? I want to close with this story. Margaret Sangster worked with children who had great disabilities, and and she worked in a, a recreational center that of children who had special physical limitations. And there was one child in particular who had a foot that was literally turned backwards. He had been run over, and in this time, this child was. A little bit disadvantaged and couldn't get the medical attention that he could possibly get, and so when all the other kids were out playing, he was standing over watching. It caught Margaret's attention, her eye—I mean, caught her eye, caught her heart. She went to the young man and she said, "Can you go out and play? I can't play. Well, what do you want to do? I just sit here and watch." I said, "Have you ever thought about getting help? I don't have any money." So Margaret took it upon herself. She said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find you. She found a doctor. She found a physical therapist. She found a hospital. Everybody was willing to donate to help this young man get his foot straight so he could run and play and do. And it was a beautiful story. Finally, one of Margaret's friends asked her, so how's the boy doing that you helped? Everyone had collected and helped this little boy. This was some years later. And she said he's in prison in prison and this is her own words in all my time of showing him how to walk I never showed him where to walk never showed him where to walk I want to show my kids I want to show the next generation this is the chair but I've got to live here first are you here emphatically because here's you can you can say one thing here but if there's anybody going to know the truth it's the ones that live under the same roof with you are you here emphatically unashamedly are you here we're going to pray together this will be a time where you can make a declaration by saying you know what it's going to be clunky it's going to be strange it's going to be awkward but we're going to do it as a family We're going to worship together next Sunday. And during our response time, when the band's singing and playing, you come and grab what? As a declaration to God. If you're not going to do it, just don't feel shame or anything. Just stay there and be in a state of prayer. This is your time. Father God, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know know what we're struggling with. You know what seat we're in, even if we don't know what seat we're in. Lord, would you help us to emphatically get in chair number one. And where we're not, Lord, help us to see, help us to, to know what needs to be made right, what needs to be made whole, what's incomplete, where there's duplicity in our life. Lord, I just pray you give us a clear understanding of who we are and where we are, that we would take care to watch over our souls diligently, lest we forget. And if we forget, there's no way our kids will remember. Guide and direct us now, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name.